Good morning. The uh, title of the article caught my attention. It was a Time Magazine article from 2015 written by a guy named Kevin McSpadden. And here's the title. You now have an attention span shorter than a goldfish. Well, that, that caught my attention as I read on in the article. I discovered that the average attention span of a goldfish, and don't ask me how they figure that out, but the average attention span of a goldfish was said to be nine seconds. And a recent study done by the Microsoft Corporation back in 2015 determined that because of the impact of digital communication and all the devices that we have today, now the attention span of the average American was eight seconds or even less. Well, when I think about those facts, I think about how difficult it is for us to do something that we are told to do again and again in Scripture, and that is to remember. If you go through the pages of Scripture, you will see in this holy book constant reminders not to forget, not to forget, to remember, to remember, remember the goodness of God, remember the faithfulness of God. And so I want to speak to you this morning for just a little bit about the importance of what I'll call gospel remembrance. If you have your Bible, our text is Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You follow along in whatever version you have as we look at this great passage of Scripture that Paul communicates in this particular passage his intimate affection, concern, compassion, care for the church at Philippi. This is the Word of God. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. What a great, great passage. And it's really a picture of the Apostle Paul, and I might even add it's a picture of a man who's been gripped by the gospel. When you're gripped by the gospel, it affects how you remember. It affects how you think about things. But I want you to see in this passage that you've got Paul remembering and praying. It's like he says, every time I think of you, I cannot help but pray for you. I remember you and I pray for you. Well, what does it look like when a man gripped by the power of the gospel remembers and prays? What does he remember? What does he give thanks to God about? What particular aspects of the people of God come to his mind? I want us to look at two things this text suggests, and then we'll look at a closing response from the Apostle Paul himself. I want you to see how, as we begin in this text, verses 3, 4, and 5, that Paul is zeroed in on the steadiness of the partnership of the Philippians, the steadiness of their partnership. If you look at the text, you see 
that Paul writes, making my prayer with joy. You see that there? Literally, making my supplication with joy. So I give thanks. I thank my God. It's a Eucharistic sort of thing there. I give thanks to God whenever I remember you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making supplication with joy. And immediately he says, one of the reasons for that joy is because of our partnership. Now, the word used there in the Greek text for partnership is so familiar that we've almost made it an English term. It's koinonia. It means participation. It means fellowship. But as you look at this text, what you see is it's far more than a, a fellowship of, of punch and cookies out in the fellowship hall of a, a church. It, it's something deep. It's something that goes far beyond any external observance. I want you to see in the text that this partnership with Paul and the church at Philippi was both material and personal. If you read in this letter, you know that the church at Philippi sent financial support, sent material support to Paul when he was in prison in Rome. But they did more than that. It was not only material support, it was personal support. They sent that support, they sent that concern wrapped up in the person of a guy named Epaphroditus. And so there was this partnership, material and personal, Epaphroditus with the gift, and it really points ahead to what you see in chapter 1, verse 27, where we have Paul writing about how these believers were striving together with him for the gospel. Now, I want you to think about that. It's not that Paul is saying that he's perfect or that these believers in Philippi are perfect, but what I love about Paul is you see a certain positivity to him. And I don't mean a positive thinking that, that fails to address problems or shortcomings in terms of one's ethics or obedience to the Lord Jesus. I'm talking about a sense of positivity that tries to make the most of a situation for the glory of God. So Paul's not focused on perfection here, but he's focused on being positive. And notice he's not being selective, he's being inclusive. I think ahead to chapter 4 where you have Paul urging those two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Apparently there's some type of conflict and he says, hey, I want you all to work together for the furtherance, for the progress of the gospel. So it's not like Paul is in a perfect situation here. He understands that fellowship is fragile precisely because we're fallen, sinful people. And if you look in any church, in any gathering of people, what do you have? Fallen, sinful people, and that's always a threat to true fellowship. Most of us in this room know the reality. All it takes is a slight fissure, just a little bit of a problem. And if that problem is not handled correctly, if there's some division, if there's some fuss, if there's some disagreement in the local ch church, quickly, quickly, a small gap can become a gaping chasm of controversy that floods the life of the church and affects its fellowship. I love what Paul does here. He's realistic. He knows that by nature... It's difficult for us to work together and to do anything together. 
Many of you have had that experience, either as a child or as a parent. You're driving down the road, and two of the kids are in the back seat, and they begin to fuss, and they begin to bicker, and the parents give instructions, and they say, look, you need to stop that. And the next thing the parents hear is that the, the children have, have, have made this imaginary line. They've drawn this imaginary line down the middle of the back seat, and neither one is allowed to cross it. And of course, both cross the line. Uh, more fighting and bickering ensues. And the car has to be pulled over to the side of the road because you can't make progress, even in a car, when people are in the back seat fighting. I think that's a picture of too many of our churches today. Sidetracked by secondary and even tertiary issues, we're fussing and bickering and drawing lines where the Bible has not drawn them. But would you look at Paul? He's focused on the active cooperation of these believers And not only their active cooperation, but look at it. He says, I like the way that you've stuck with me. Your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Cooperation, duration. There's something beautiful about a plotting consistency in the life of a believer, joining hands and hearts together with other believers to walk forward in gospel ministry. Yeah, Uh, Paul says we're partners for the sake of the gospel. Literally, it's it's the good news. It's the good news. And so what do you have Paul doing here as he remembers these people? He gives thanks for them and he prays for them And he prays for them because of the steadiness of their partnership. Now look at the second thing. There's a second aspect in this text of of this remembering and this praying and what it looks like when a gospel-saturated person remembers and prays. It's not just the steadiness of partnership, but it's also a conviction about the progress of these people. Now, it's not that Paul is is praising these people and saying, oh, you're so wonderful. You're the greatest people on the face of the earth. Notice with me in this second emphasis in the text, Paul's focus is not so much on the people as it is on the God of those people. Look at it. Some commentators say that verse 6 is the hinge on which the door of this passage swings. Look at it. Verse 6. Right there, Paul writes, and I am sure of this. Really, it's another participial phrase, being persuaded. So Paul, as he is remembering and thanking, is making supplication with joy, with a a gratitude, with a thankfulness independent of circumstances. He's making supplication for their partnership in light of their partnership. And now he's going to express his conviction that God will complete what he started in these people. I'm sure of this, being persuaded that he, that would be God, he who commenced, he who began a good work in you. Well, what work would that be? It would be the work of salvation. Paul is referring to the fact that you people were saved by the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God began that work in you, and God is a great finisher. So he's got a conviction about their progress, not just not just joy in the steadiness of their partnership. Previously, making supplication with thanksgiving now, being persuaded, being convinced. Well, you look at the life of Paul and it seems clear that he was 
He was critical to the beginning of the church in Philippi. You might say he was the founding pastor. He had an especially harmonious relationship with these people. And now he says, I know that he, the one, God himself, who began a good work in you. The language there is interesting. Literally, the one who inaugurated, the one who commenced. It speaks of the the solemn and the ceremonial, clearly demarcating the time. God started this in you. It was deliberate. It was decisive. He started in you the good work. Now, we're looking in this text, at least Paul is, at salvation from God's perspective. Salvation begins in the heart and mind of God. It continues with the enablement of a sovereign God, and it proceeds until God completes that work. So from God's perspective, we could say, like the old preacher used to say, when it comes to salvation, as human beings, we neither thought it, sought it, or bought it. God thought it. God seeks our salvation through the provision of his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he purchases it purchases it through the shed blood of his only son. Now, don't get the text wrong. Don't get Paul wrong. You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to respond to the gospel. The point here is that God makes the gospel possible. He makes the first move. He takes the initiative. We sing, oh, how I love Jesus. Why? Because he first loved me. Well, what does this text say? It's saying... The God who began the work, who inaugurated the work in salvation, will be faithful to put his finishing touches on you. Finishing touches on you. Now, I want to tell you why that's so important. Sometimes we are impatient, hypercritical of other people. We forget that they are works in progress, that they are under construction, we might say, that God has begun a work in them and he's going to keep on working in them, but he hasn't finished putting his final touches on them. But Paul has confidence that God always finishes what he starts. And you and I ought to have that confidence as well. He is putting his finishing touches on us. And I think that's so important because what is it? What is it that really connects Paul and these people? How is it that he can pray and sense such a connection with these people? Don't forget Paul is the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. And here he is writing about this fellowship and this compassion that he has for people that are far, far, far away from Judaism. They're Gentiles coming out of complete paganism. And yet Paul has this relationship with them. Why is that? Because they've been glued together by the gospel. You know, it seems today that that in the evangelical world, we love to highlight our differences. And by no means am I saying that we need to compromise a single iota of truth. But we are way past the time when believers have the luxury of dividing over third and fourth and even fifth level issues. And they can't even speak a comforting, encouraging, edifying word to one another. 
But I want you to look at this text. The glue that holds these people together with Paul is the glue of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, They've been brought together by the saving and sustaining grace of King Jesus. And don't you love it in this text? Paul says, I'm confident, I'm persuaded the Lord who started a work in you will be faithful to finish it. My Greek professor, for whom this building is named, Dr. Jack McGorman, used to tell us and remind us in class, gentlemen, we're saved by grace, we grow by grace, and we get home by grace. That's exactly what Paul is writing about in verse 6. But there's one other thing in this passage I want you to see. It's only appropriate after Paul is expressing his joy in the steadiness of their gospel partnership and and he expresses his conviction about how God finishes what he starts. It's only appropriate that he ends with what I might call a beautiful assertion or a confession of his feeling for these people. Look at it again. It's right for me to feel this way about you. Then look at that statement, because I hold you in my heart. And here's the, here's the fellowship idea. You are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense, my apology, my, my defense, my making a case for the gospel and the vindication, the confirmation of it. And I want you to look at that. We might say that at this point, Paul is feeling it for the Philippians. Deep, deep. It's not just some shallow emotion. It's that gospel glue. I mean, he's dealing with people with whom he had nothing in common. For the most part, he had little or nothing in common with these people in terms of historical background, ethnicity, religious experience, social status, educational status. He has nothing in common. And part of the message of Philippians is that the gospel is so powerful is that it brings people together from diverse backgrounds and experiences and it unites them and the gospel is great enough to be the glue that keeps people together. And that's what we got to build our ministries on. You see, too often, churches are paralyzed because you have leadership, pastors, even people in the pews who are bent on the strategy of incessant self-promotion. And I tell my students in preaching class, we are not called to do an exposition of ourselves. We are called consistently to do an exposition of Holy Scripture, which does what? It points to the gluing power, you might say, the cohesive power of the gospel to bring people together in a way that nothing else in all of time and eternity can do. Now, Paul is celebrating that. He's celebrating that. We may not have anything else in common But if we know Christ, we have in common the most important thing. And it's powerful enough to keep us together. Paul says he can look forward to that that day because he knows God will finish what he started in people. And that that day of Christ's expected return will come. People are delivered from the wrath of God. They enjoy the eternal presence of God. Why? It's all of grace from start to finish. And so look at Paul's confession here. 
He's feeling it for these people. It's only appropriate. It's right. It's right for me to feel this way. You think about the beginnings of the church in Philippi, the seller of purple, Lydia in Acts 16, 14, the Philippian jailer. Humanly, they have little or nothing in common with Paul except they're sinners in need of a Savior. And here's Paul in prison, Jew of Jews, and yet he feels this connection. He feels this connection. So much so that he invokes God as his witness. You see it there? As God is my witness, I keep on longing for you with all the affection of the Lord Jesus. You know, I discourage my students in class from saying or quoting Greek words in the pulpit for the most part. But I, I want to break that, uh, that mold this morning because the word is so expressive. Paul says, I yearn with you with all of the splatnoi. Isn't that a great word? It means from the gut, from the bowels. In, in ancient times, uh, the seat of emotion and feeling was seen as the guts, the bowels. And it's fascinating to me that that same term, a form of it is used when the gospels recorded Jesus looking on the people. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus has same concept, compassion on them. You see, when you're captured and gripped by the gospel, it not only changes your relationship with God vertically, but it changes your relationship horizontally because Jesus brings you to himself and then he brings you into healthy connection with other people. And because of the gospel, you're glued together with other people. So much so that Paul can say to these Gentiles, hey, I hold you in my heart. I yearn with you. I have gospel guts for you. I'm committed to you because together we're committed to Christ and to the expansion of the gospel. And that's the beauty and the power of gospel remembrance. So maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking, I appreciate that. Thank you for explaining this text to us. But maybe you're really thinking, so what? What, what does that mean to me today? How does that plug into my life as a seminary student, as a, as a professor, as, as a believer serving in the local church? I think I'd sum it up like this. Here's a passage that is pretty much screaming out at us saying, because the gospel is the source of meaningful partnership and progress then we need to cultivate a culture of gospel remembrance. You see, it won't do for the church to have this collective attention span of a goldfish or of a gnat. We need gospel remembrance like the Apostle Paul. Well, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, I think on the one hand, we, we have this gospel remembrance when we prioritize prayer. So I want to say to you and remind myself that we should never, never, ever minimize the strategic role of prayer. Notice the whole context of this account. Paul is praying. He's interceding for these people. I love what Elizabeth Elliot wrote about intercessory prayer. She says, intercession is the hardest work in the world. It's the giving of oneself, time, strength, energy, and attention to the needs of others in a way that no one but God sees, 
No one but God will do anything about and no one but God will ever reward you for. That's an important reminder. But what do you find Paul doing? What is Paul doing? He's not avoiding controversy and difficulty when he needs to address it. He does that not only in Philippi, he does it with the church in Corinthian, with the Corinthian church. He does it with the Galatians churches, Galatian churches. So Paul's not avoiding, he's not neglecting his responsibility, but the overarching focus in his ministry is that of coming alongside of people, interceding before the throne of grace for them. So if we're going to have a gospel remembering culture, there's going to have to be prayer. And then next, you need to always see yourself and others as works in progress. And can I just say that it's important in your stewardship and my stewardship of communication to model what Paul does here. It's so easy to become negative. Uh, years ago, in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a vice president of the United States who ended up having to uh, resign from office because of corruption. His name was Spiro T. Agnew. Well, a few remember anything about him except for this one thing. He had an ongoing clash with the press in his day. <clears throat> and he thought the press was entirely too negative and he would speak of them like this. He says in the press, we have these reporters and they are little more than nattering nabobs of negativity. Now, nattering nabobs of negativity. You're not going to hear that a lot. But I was reminded when I, when I read that article, when I thought back to that comment that Agnew made, that's what you have, unfortunately, too often in the church of today. We have nattering nabobs of negativity talking in such a way that they're uninformed. They don't know. They don't take the time to get to know the people that they're speaking about and criticizing. And the result, the result is relational chaos. Well, another, another way to apply this text today is to recognize that you tend to remember what you relish. Uh, one author says, we praise what we prize. We're more likely not to forget something if it's precious to us. And so I would ask you this morning, you know what brought forth joy and delight in the life of the Apostle Paul. Man, it was the, the growth of these people and their consistency, their steadiness. It was the knowledge that God had not finished working in them. That brought him joy. That brought him delight. What is it that brings forth your joy and your delight? Well, it ought to be, it ought to be the gospel that saves us and grounds us and glues us together. In the end, in the end, the creeping paralysis of constant forgetfulness and continual self-promotion is a cancer in the church. And the only way we combat it is with a fresh round of gospel remembrance. I thank my God whenever I remember you.